What's going on guys and welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Today we have a very, very special guest. We have one half of the Muscle Mentors, um, Callum Raystrick. He is also my coach and it's been, um, it is amazing to be up here. Um, we had a, a monster session earlier, um, struggled to get my food down after and, um, and we've got another one tomorrow. So I'm up here to get as much value to you guys here as possible um, without taking too much time of course. And I want to run through a few things. I want to run through um, a little bit on nutrition, a little bit on training. I want to get the most important things out first because I've got a lot of drug questions, of course. This is, this is you know, the big topic at the moment is the drugs at the moment. But I want to leave that to the end because it is the least important out of these three. And I want to make that clear. And I'm sure Callum will agree on that. Um, so we can just jump straight into it. And we've, basically, I've learned so much from Callum over the year, over the, uh, this past like five months-ish. Um, and the most important thing has been about monitoring your variables and some variables that I've not known about before. Um, and one thing that a lot of people asked about was digestion. Um, so what I've noticed is my digestion is better than ever. Um, I've actually thought about it, which is what some people don't do. Um, so I'd love to know your take on digestion and how do you look to improve it? So if someone's come to you with poor digestion, what are you doing to improve that? Um, I think probably from a from a digestive perspective, it's looking at instead of I think the the number one thing that people would normally tend to gravitate towards would be right. We need to supplement with digestive enzymes or acids to help promote better digestive function within that individual. But from our side, as as you know full well from direct experience, it's more so looking at putting the body and more specifically the nervous system in the most optimal place to improve digestion just from a foundational level. So all the way from, you know, the state you're in before you eat your meal in terms of autonomic balance and being in a low stress state to how many times you're chewing your food, like just just instead of looking at essentially putting a band-aid over an issue and, and supplementing with something that is in theory faulty or broken we're looking at fixing it from the ground up and and putting habits and and practices in place day to day that will essentially solve these things long term and put you in the best possible place moving forwards to make sure they don't return back to to poor ways that they had been in the past um yeah absolutely i think callum um summarize about you don't you can't put a band-aid on these things um that's the, that is the industry at the moment a quick fix what what supplement is going to fix what and really it's not about that it's about uh, figuring out what the fundamentals and what's going wrong um, and it comes down to food choices um, and you can supplement a little bit but essentially it's coming down to food choices and, and that's something that I've learned more than anything is food choices because before I was just pounding whatever I could get pounding heavy fats pounding heavy salts and it fucked my stomach up that's the reality of it, it fucked my stomach up and we are inhibited by how much we can eat as I'm slowly learning um, through this process so uh, yeah, that's that's a great take on that. Uh, moving forward more into nutrition. Obviously, uh, I put up on my Instagram talking about how I pulled down my protein. What an uproar. What an <laughs> uproar that goes. What do you mean you're only eating 180 grams of protein? You're 100 kilos. Um, so I'll let you take why am I eating 180 versus 240 what I was on before? Mm. Um, and how much protein should people be eating? And what should they be concerned about when it comes to protein um, per meal or over the day? Um, and essentially, what what the role is there? Mm. Like, if you look at that from a from a literature perspective, then we can probably maximize muscle protein synthesis and minimize protein breakdown with a pretty minimal bolus dose of protein across the day. If we want to be more specific about things, and I think it is a bit of 
a folklore bro science type scenario where the whole notion of 1.5 or 1.3 grams per pound is is absolutely a prerequisite for, for one to be able to build tissue or or retain tissue it's it's not really um relevant it's looking at you know for me you look at all the macronutrients fat and protein are probably the two hardest things to break down um fat requiring a lot of of bile acids and um, you know, specific things within the digestive tract to, to, to break them down and protein being one of the most taxing on the digestive system as a whole. Um, and even from the perspective of looking at um, the, the surface area of those proteins, they're going to require a lot of chewing. Most people aren't chewing their food sufficiently, which means that these these foods are coming down into the digestive tract in larger pieces and, and structures than they realistically should be being digested um, from so they're going to be relatively taxing on the digestive system so from our perspective one's ability to eat and eat sufficiently is going to ultimately determine their ability to grow and from your perspective Josh it's a case of putting you on the minimal least effective dose possible for for protein the same we do for volume the same we're going to speak about later in terms of drug use is looking at realistically if we're looking at this long term what's the minimal amount we can get for the maximum amount of, of a response um, and from a protein perspective you know three to four grams of leucine every realistically four to five hours is plenty in terms of maximizing what we would be using protein for in terms of regulating protein synthesis um, and we don't need these bolus doses of 40 50 60 grams per meal they're just all they're doing is just placing more stress on our digestive system so um for most bodybuilders, a lot of bodybuilders suffer with digestive issues. A lot of bodybuilders eat high protein diets. A lot of bodybuilders don't chew the foods. Um, there's going to be a correlation there, yeah. uh, and we're starting to kind of debunk a lot of those myths now and putting people in a, a much better position to grow and optimize their health by just manipulating the diet in in more optimal ways and not kind of doing what everyone else has done for the last fifty years because it works for it worked for Arnie. You know, yeah. it's, it's, we're, we're learning stuff now that we can kind of run with. Absolutely. And then talking about like, um, like macronutrient breakdown um, and differences between training day versus non-training day. Now, I've, loads of people have different opinions of this. Some people say you need to continue with the same amount of calories on each day so you can refuel and recover. Um, but I know that JP, big people in the industry, Callum as well, um, they prefer like splitting training day and non-training day from a nutritional approach different calories different macros um what's the thought process um i, I know the thought process but i just wanted for, for you guys out there i had a lot of questions about how come i'm eating different amounts of carbohydrates um on training days versus non-training days um so i can let you run with that one so like there's, there's nothing wrong with the the coach that would present the argument that a seven day flat line calorie intake and macronutrient intake is going to get you to your goals because it is um, ultimately energy balance is still being controlled and that's the main contributing factor in governing body composition. When we're looking at the extremes here in terms of gaining maximum amounts of lean tissue and someone's ability to inevitably have to drive their food relatively aggressively to get to that point, we've got to think eating the same foods in the same amounts every single day will inevitably start to hinder our ability to eat those foods long term a because digestive function will be hindered from processing large amounts of the same foods day to day over and over and over again and b if we're hammering carbohydrates heavily training and non-training days 
whether we have a demand for them or not, there will eventually be a point of no return or point of diminishing returns where glucose sensitivity will start to diminish. So from a partitioning perspective with with training and non-training days, the calorie gaps don't need to be significant. It's more so manipulating macronutrients to A, give you some form of reset day or a couple of reset days or three reset days a week where the digestive system is being taxed less with less amounts of food being pushed through that through that digestive tract and requiring and demanding less from it. And B, having a period of time, whether that's in the day or with it, whether that's a day within the week where we're spending you know longer periods of time with less insulin being produced by the pancreas and less blood, uh, less glucose being present in the blood um, to essentially mean that when we come back to those higher carbohydrate days, we're going to be much more efficient at utilizing them and, and driving them into the cell, which is going to be the, the main goal of us trying to um, get the most anabolic response from food. Absolutely. Um, the one thing that I've noticed from, from starting with Callum is that every little detail is geared towards performance to nutrient absorption and maximizing everything that we're doing, maximizing the food that's going in, maximizing the training, the output, um, and really just getting on top of it because it's so easy to get lost in these calories there and these calories that and, and, and not focusing on the end goal of, of accruing tissue and, and putting the work in the gym and being consistently in a progressive diet um, while remaining optimal in terms of absorption rates and all that kind of stuff. So that is... Um, that's essentially what we're doing on non-train days and, and training days. Um, and then touching on training, I've got a flow loads of questions. Why the bands? Why the chains? Like people are absolutely raving for, why am I using this band? Why am I using that band? What is the, the, the idea behind these um, in terms of like strength profiles um, and, and training? And one thing I will note before we say is, is I think I've shifted my focus so much on diet while it's still there, but to actually realizing how important training execution is and training protocol is. Mm. Um, because you can go in there and you can go swing your weight around without your program. And yeah, you're going to get a bit of muscle if you're trying to get stronger over time. But the importance of, of, of actually having that routine has, has really shone through for me this off season. So what, what's, what's with all the different techniques you're going through? When you, when you start to get a better grasp of anatomy and, and exercise mechanics, you can start to put things in, in place and different variables in place within the training cycle, within the training program that will apply to that specific exercise or that specific goal of the session to achieve that goal maybe a little bit better or a little bit more efficiently. And it's not to say at all that bands, uh, you know, and, and manipulating a, a resistance profile with a band is, is going to be an essential for creating an adaptation, far from it, because there are plenty of people that don't use them, but... If you know how to use them and you know the, the why, then they can be a very useful tool within the grand scheme of things. They can't be the only tool you use, but they can be a very useful tool within the grand scheme of things for achieving that, that long-term goal. And there'll be periods of time where Josh goes through training programs where he doesn't use a band. There'll be periods of times where he goes through a training program where he does use a band. And there'll be a reason why it's there and there'll be a reason why maybe it won't be there. But, you know, any program will work given that your execution is, is sufficient you're targeting and stimulating enough tissue um, and, you're, and you're optimizing recovery outside of the gym. Are they absolutely essential for creating that response? No, but can they be a contributing factor in making the most optimal training response? Most definitely. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And then in terms of uh, elicit, eliciting that response we need in the gym, um, one of the questions was, Training to failure versus reps and reserve. Reserve. I know that I'm programmed to go to failure. Um, 
on certain exercises, obviously we do have like acclimation sets, um, but the top sets are all out sets. So what, I'd love to know your thought process. I've got my own thought process on why I prefer going to failure, um, but I'd love to know, you know, what's your thought process on that? What, what, what are we getting at when we go to a failure versus saving reps? Like, it, it's probably the easiest way to explain whether failure is necessary in the first place is to start to look at a different or two different parties for, for an untrained and a trained individual. An untrained individual which has a relatively low exposure to adaptation from resistance training and a low exposure to training in the first place in recruiting tissues will definitely be able to spend a long period of time progressing and adapting without going anywhere near true mechanical failure. Um, you know, an untrained individual will have a, a lower propensity to um, stimulate high motor, unit uh, high motor unit thresholds, but high threshold motor units, sorry. Um, but they'll recruit more fibers within the process given the same volume that an advanced trainer would have. And that advanced trainer would be able to recruit higher um, motor unit thresholds, um, but they're essentially recruiting less tissue within that given volume. Now, the reason why someone like Josh would potentially want to expose himself to failure more often than someone that was potentially less experienced than Josh is because Josh is going to have to essentially force a stimulus that will require, um, that will basically create more structural change and create more structural change within the cell to then force an adaptation. If, if an untrained individual was going to train failure as many times as Josh was, they'd never be able to recover. But because we've got this foundation in place of recovery practices and Josh has already been training for how many years? Six years. Six years, seven years. And training well for a quite a considerable yeah. amount of that time as well. We're going to require more exposure to, to, to fatigue to actually create those adaptations in the first place because the body and the cell is a very adaptive mechanism and over time it's going to get more efficient at not adapting to things that you're throwing at. So um, failure is a tool, but only if it can be managed. And that's going to be a case of whether someone has an ability to recover from it or if somebody you know is relatively fragile in their recovery ability and they're new to training, they definitely don't need to be trained to failure. It's also worth noting that any of those mechanisms of hypertrophy taken to a sufficient enough point of fatigue will stimulate the same amount of motor unit, uh, motor unit recruitment, um, which means that you know any of those mechanisms we can elicit a hypertrophy um, adaptation and any of those mechanisms taken to a sufficient point of fatigue that doesn't actually mean has to go to complete failure will also elicit a hypertrophic adaptation. But the main thing is that the more advanced an individual is, they're is a higher propensity that they're probably going to have to go closer to and or go to failure to achieve the same level of adaptation that that untrained individual would um, using the same amount of volume, obviously having to go to failure less. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Explained very well. So if you're a new newbie out there, you know, start start with with a few reps and reserves and build yourself up over the years and and notice the response changes and if if the changes aren't happening as quick, maybe try a little bit harder and and see what happens getting closer to that failure, like Kama said, but also the biggest part of that, what I can take is, is recovery, you know, and, and how much you can recover will dictate how much you can do in the gym. So mm. if you could outline, I don't know, maybe three to five of your top recovery variables that we're tracking, um, which I don't think a lot of people will be tracking because a lot of people just eat and train and that's, that's where they finish. Um, so what are the, the, the management techniques that, that we're using currently? 
from a from a recovery standpoint. Data tracking perspective. So um, they're they're mostly one thing I forgot to mention on the uh, fairly bit as well is this, you view um, if people view it as they we're training with any um, you know faculty in terms of whether it's a sport or whether it's you're, you're training for bodybuilding we've got to earn the right to move with speed and we've got to earn the right to train to failure and that's a good way of looking at it yeah. um, and like you said having everything in place to make sure that we can actually respond positively to do that type of training um, data tracking wise so most of the stuff that we're tracking will be um, related to essentially putting things in place to make sure that the nervous system's in the most optimal manner to um respond and function all the way from neurotransmitter production to the state of the autonomic nervous system so you've got parasympathetic you've got sympathetic and that will be indicative in um, resting heart rate which will be one thing we track uh, it will be indicative in heart rate variability which will be another thing we track hrv most people abbreviated to uh, will measure um, and especially one that will be more apparent for josh soon will measure blood pressure Elevated stress and chronic stress or an in individual that's overreaching, any stress response repeated for a long enough period of time will create vasoconstriction, which will increase blood pressure. So blood pressure can be a pretty good sign of a stress response being present. Um, blood glucose is another one working in the same manner. Uh, Liver is going to kind of liberate glucose into the blood at, the ex at, a, at a response from stress, more sympathetic dominance. So typically blood glucose management will be poorer and faster blood glucose will be elevated when we're in a more stressed state. Um, we're tracking sleep. So sleep is going to be something we try and optimize the efficiency of, which Josh has been pretty darn good at for the last five months, um, just because of his habits and his lifestyle. And what else are we tracking? Uh, resting heart rate, HIV, blood glucose, blood pressure, Digestion. Sleep, digestion. So even like any um, any subjective. So all of those things will be objective. The, yeah. Either a machine or an app is telling us what the figure is. We have no control of what that's telling us, which is great because it means that Josh can't um, basically influence what the data is telling me. But we've got more subjective feedback markers as well by feedback how he's feeling how he feels training performance is going, his readiness to train, um, how he feels, you know, even down to perceived recovery or perceived sleep quality in terms of how he feels it's going personally. Um, from a digestive perspective, we've got any, you know, known digestive irregularities, any discomfort, any bloating, any flatulence, any irregularities in motility. So that's basically stools or um, Josh's movements throughout the day in terms of their quality, in terms of their frequency. Uh, look at something like the Bristol stool chart and we can you know, rate one to seven what type of stool that was. It may sound a bit weird, but there's a place and time for it. Um, you know, How many times he's going across the day? Are there any specific foods that are creating um, an inflammatory response or being reactive within the diet? And there are a couple of things that we figured out early on that we took out pretty quickly because we knew that you weren't responding favorably to them. And even from a digestive perspective, you know, we can use... Going back to the foundations of heart rate or blood glucose, we can use those two markers to actually identify foods that are being inflammatory or are creating these immune responses within the body because any inflammatory food that we consume that we're not going to agree with will create a stress response and that stress response will be shown within your heart rate and your heart rate's ability to return to baseline or the same manner goes for blood glucose as well. So essentially what you'll find is 
you know, it may, it may seem anal to somebody that's not informed about why these things are important, but essentially we've got a coaching system now and coaching practices that allow us to control every system that Josh needs to worry about uh, and essentially control every single variable. And if anything is off, we can highlight it straight away and know what's going on. Amazing. That's exactly the response I wanted to hear because a lot of, I mean, a lot of the big thing at the moment is sleep and sleep is great, but there is so much more to the details that you could be tracking um, and you should be tracking if you if, if your goal is to be you know a bodybuilder and a professional this is this is what you should be tracking from the start um, and putting yourself in the best position to maximize your muscle gaining potential or fat loss potential because all of these things will affect that um, in the long run and the longer your those those things are out of whack um, the harder it is to get to where you want to go um, yeah, so I wanted to just we'll leave those ones there for the nutrition, uh, training, and recovery. Um, I hope you guys understand how important these things are. And none of these things, I mean, uh, sorry, all of these things should be in place before we talk about the next thing, which is drugs, um, the juicy stuff, which everyone's waiting for. Um, I know we wanted to do a little video on this, um, but just like briefly, um, if someone's looking to do their first cycle, for example, me, that is me, guys, in case you didn't know, I'm doing my first cycle very, very soon. Um, what situation should they be in? We'll say body composition wise um, and what should they be doing and getting in place before anything starts yeah. um, the, the first thing that you've got to consider is you need to have a big enough why to do it yeah. in the first okay. place yeah. that's yeah, the most this, important this thing. is something that could potentially be quite detrimental and harmful to a your health physiologically and psychologically if misused so from Josh's perspective, if he's going to embark on this, then he's going to get the advice of, from me and from other, um, you know, professionals and some medical professionals as well, um, to to kind of how how to approach this in the most optimal manner and be sensible about it as well because it's there's lots of information out there on the internet, most of it's shit, some of it's good now from people like Dr. Dean. Um, uh, and people are getting more informed as to how these things can be applied, but from a, you know, grasping the basics of what we need to consider first, a the position of health you're you're starting that at. So we need to get some form of baseline of blood work done. There are many providers of that. It's very easy to get hold of. Um, that we look at specific health markers. Um, actually looking at what your uh, genetic, unassisted natural set point for testosterone bound and free is looking at LH and FSH and looking at um, you know why potentially it is low and if it is low in the first place and there are things that we can identify from you know nutritional practices or more so lifestyle practices poor lifestyle poor sleep high stress all these things start to impact the steroid hormone pathway HBA axis that will start to impact all these hormones you know maybe if that individual wanted to I'd suggest address the things that were being perform badly or lifestyle uh, variables that were suboptimal first before even considering about using exogenous hormones because you know if we're going to go to the extent of injecting or you know taking some form of exogenous hormone and putting it in the body you want to make darn sure that you're in the best possible position to respond to that in the first place and that's not just our oh, fucking great at training or I train really hard or I eat loads of food it's more so looking at you know, the stuff, the fundamentals that are going to optimize your health and the fundamentals that are going to optimize your health and function will be the same things that will optimize your ability to respond to a, to a drug. And that's going to come as managing stress. It's going to come optimizing your sleep. 
And realistically, if all of these things are managed and all these things are being optimized, your genetic set point and your natural level of hormones theoretically should be you know, within a range on a blood work panel. It shouldn't be low. There's gonna be something that's causing that to be low if it is, if it is low. Um, and we need to make sure that those fundamentals and those foundations are, are firmly established, which is Josh, Josh has essentially done that for the last five months with me every single week, every single day. Um, before you even think about going down the route of assistance, because most people see that as as a it's a fast track, it is not a fast track because yeah. you're still going to have to do all the work yeah. and more for years, for years and years <laughs> and years to actually get anywhere close to where you think you could get to. Yeah. Um, and when assistance goes in, yes, you'll get a little bit stronger, yes, you'll get a little bit bigger, but it will still be the same case of I'm not big enough. Yeah. I'm not strong enough. I want to get bigger. I want to get stronger. Yeah. You'll never, I guarantee you, you'll never be satisfied where you are. Yeah. The ballpark, the, the goalposts just change. Yeah, absolutely. Whether the day you've set foot in the gym, it's the day you're not happy with the gym, with your body ever again. <laughs> always always chasing more, always chasing more. It's true. Um, it's so important to, 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 take, to take that advice on board. Um, regardless, even if you're one of those people who just says, fuck it, I want to get big, like, it's ridiculous because you are going to fuck your health up if you're not doing it properly. Um, and with the bad information out there, which I would have been using and utilizing, I was saying to Callum earlier, I, I, if I'd started a year ago, I, I would have been doing way higher doses that I'm going to be starting on. And, and who knows what that would have happened down, down the line. And also, if you do want to make a pro and you do want, and you do want to you know, essentially rise to the top, a drug is a tool and you need to creep that in over, over time and use that. Because at the end of the day, those guys at the top... Everyone's recovering well. Everyone's training well. Everyone's eating well. Everyone's using drugs. You know, it's just it, it can come down to what what drugs work, come down to genetics, all that kind of stuff. So put everything in place beforehand, um, and then moving on to, I had a lot of questions. Surprisingly, I'm surprised I get so many questions about people who do cycle, considering I've been natural for this long. But how often should people who do cycle on and off um, should they be getting bloods done? Before, during, after, um, however many weeks. Um, I've had a, I've had a few clients who, who use, and they um, they wanted to know should they be doing the standard wait two weeks and then running PCD, which is one of the things I've been learning probably shouldn't be happening. Um, what are the blood test situations? Um, so, from a blood work perspective, there's no. If people aren't running blood work, it's either out of negligence or they just don't want to know what the blood work is going to tell them um, because yeah. their health's probably in a compromised place. And they've been living in, um, they've just been being naive and kind of living in the dark in terms of not wanting to find out, but which is very common, by the way. Um, but from the accessibility of being able to access private companies that will supply you with, um, you know, panels that will tell you essentially what's going on from a physiological perspective and from an endocrine perspective. Um, the beauty of this now is if you go onto Medichex, for example, you can pick individual markers that you want to test that are very, very cheap. So we might want to just test, um, you know, if we're looking at someone's ability to aromatase and produce an aromatase enzyme and we're worried about estrogen or we're worried about prolaxin, we can test these individual markers. We don't need to run a big, big panel. Yep. It's going to cost hundreds of pounds. But from a general perspective, if you were, if you were to go on Medichex and look at like the, the core Wellman test, which has basically everything you can think of. For anyone using assistance, I pro probably run that every quarter of the year. So every four months, four times a year, um, we get some form of baseline done just to see what's going on. 
from a prep perspective where potentially somebody's going to be a little bit more aggressive with drug use, we'd want to run a full panel of bloods um, covering all markers before that prep started. That prep shouldn't be taking place if that panel doesn't come back optimal and within range, within reason. Okay. Um, if there are any indications of health being adverse during a cycle, that can come from the data that we're tracking that you said before about blood glucose, HRV, resting mm-hmm. heart rate, um, or any kind of more tangible um, feedback, um, then you can run individual markers or you can run panels during prep to see what's going on. It's very, very easy to find out what's going on. Um, you know, maybe we want to look at more specifically liver values, where maybe we want to look at more specifically a lipid profile, cholesterol, triglycerides. Um, we want to look at inflammation and inflammatory markers. Um, and then post prep, I'd always have a period of time where someone just settles back into their um, more homeostatic state in regards to reducing stress load post post prep, maybe reducing output a little bit, maybe reducing training volume a little bit. Um, tapering back drugs to what we'd consider being a cruise dose, a more sustainable dose. Uh, and then, you know, four to six weeks after that, uh, when we've got all the other shit sorted, then we can start to look at running blood work post-prep. Um, and if markers are off, then we need to address and then run it again, you know, four to six weeks or maybe a little bit longer, run it again, see where they are and start to move from there. But essentially, you're, if you're not running blood work, you're doing this entire process blind. And that is very, very dangerous. Yeah. Um, regardless of whether you are feeling or aware of any adversity in terms of side effects on cycle or not, you know, some of this stuff can happen without you even realizing. And then when you run bloods, markers are, are off and you're in a compromised state of health. So just if you're going to go through it, if you're going to go through that process, go, to, go, go down that route. Or if you're already on, you know, if you're already using assistance, you're already using anabolics and you haven't in the past, just, just go and go and get it done. Uh, see what's going on, because um, you you will thank yourself, you yeah. know, long term. Because essentially, it's your only it's your only medium of controlling what's going on and how to monitor things. Yeah, I mean, I know the typical bro at the gym. I know a few of them at my gym, and they're taking a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of gear, and they don't even know what a blood test is, and they complain about problems, and they take it a Rimadex to fix a problem. But you can't take it a Rimadex if you don't know what the problem is. You need to find out what the problem is. If you feel anything, get the blood test done. Um, but to summarize, three to four times a year, when you finish your prep, wait four to six weeks, bring back down to a cruise, um, and then just consistently get those bloods done until you're back to, to where you need to be in an optimal range. Um, I think it's super, super important anyone to be doing this because it's just so so overlooked the amount of people I hear that just don't do it it's, it's, it's quite ridiculous it's quite scary to be honest um, it's, te- it's you know what it's anywhere from 30 to 50 quid to get a full testosterone panel might even be cheaper now um, and you're going to find out exactly what's out of whack and what's not so there's no real excuse just that for you to be on top of your own health because if you want to be doing this for a long time uh, you've got to be healthy I think, I think from a blood work perspective in terms of markers that people need to be aware of if somebody's using an exogenous hormone and testosterone is obviously most likely for everyone going to be one of them if they are you know measuring testosterone for example on a blood panel is not going to tell you a lot because you're using exogenous hormones and if your gear is legit it's going to be elevated if you're looking at you know aromatization estrogen and prolactin are going to be something that you want to delve into and keep in track if somebody's going to be using anti-aromatizing drugs then don't just add them in willy-nilly because you read it on the internet 
actually see where those markers are and then start to figure out a strategy to bring them down and manage them. Some people may not need to use any at all. Some people may not may need to use some if they use any any exogenous hormone. It needs to be specific, it needs to be managed, it needs to be tracked. Um, but from a health marker perspective, red and white blood cells and all the individual elements involved, um, C-reactive protein, HbA1c, uh, kidney and liver markers and, and values, um, Lipids and, and cholesterol, HDL and LDL, and LDL oxidation being an important one are probably your most important go-to guys. So instead of looking at, I'm going to get my bloods done, I need to measure my, t- measure my testosterone to see if it's still high, yeah. it's the least relevant, okay, <laughs> it's the okay, least okay, relevant yeah. panel you need to be um, measuring. It's more so looking at those health markers that are going to have more of a direct impact on your health. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I said, are you sponsored by Medish Expert? Are you were, yeah, you were yeah, collaborating? Yeah. yeah, I just thought I'd work on them. It's super cheap. And yeah, it's really, really just, just go and do so it. easy. It's so, so easy. Um, cool. So I'd love to know your opinion on uh, blast and cruising um, because we, we had a little conversation downstairs about when I do start, um, would I would I come off? When would I come off? And it would essentially just be, I'll be on a low dose and would run that into the show. Um, but if my ultimate goal is to be a, a pro um, and, and to compete at the Olympia and to compete competitive at the Olympia, um, I do think that will dictate whether you blast and cruise, etc. Um, but what's your take on blast and cruising? Should you ever come off if you're a- aiming for that goal? Do you need to resensitize? Do you need to to get that natural access? H- uh, was it HPTA access? Do I need to get that access back? Um, is it got? Is it gone forever? Is it going to come back? All that kind of stuff. Um, that's like, a personal question. The, the, the whole notion of having to um, resensitize is is flawed. Like that, that's, okay. that's not required. Um, the only reason, well, like, the only reason logically that somebody will come off is because they were either um, going to maximize fertility to conceive, because mm-hmm. um, conceiving whilst using exogenous hormones can be tricky. It's not saying it can't be done, but it can, it's, it's trickier. Um, and uh, and or we've identified that health marker is off. Even putting you on any form of exogenous hormone um, is going to, still compromise the state of that health marker. We need to come off and reset properly and, and eradicate these hormones to essentially improve that health marker before reintroducing. Now, it's not to say, and for someone like Josh and for most people, if your long-term goal is to pursue bodybuilding and your long-term goal is to continue to maximize your ability to build lean tissue and pursue assisted bodybuilding or untested bodybuilding, and you know that drugs are going to be in your life for a long period of time, you will only need to cruise. Uh, you will only need to come off, for example, for those two reasons. Okay. I would prefer someone to stay on and just manage blood work. Yeah. Then come off completely because yep. coming off can actually create a lot more problems okay. than you could if yep. you actually just stayed on. It. Which is crazy because people, days. all people tell me is is run this and then you've got to come off. You've got to come off your first one after sixteen weeks. And yeah, it's 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 not the right information. Um, so and coming off in the first place is again when we look at the the brutalization of what a PCT should be um, that's another thing where people will go extremely off track in regards to um, how that should be approached and again something that can significantly compromise long-term health just by messing up that whole process so um, you know the whole the whole notion of blasting and cruising there'll be times of the year within an off season where the goal is tissue or within a prep where the goal is the extremes of body composition where drug use will be more aggressive doesn't need to mean that it needs to be 
quote unquote high. It's what is what's high for relatively for that individual. There'll there'll be times where you need to be more aggressive long term. For for someone like Josh, not at all because he's very new to this. Um, but don't view it as there's an on and off. You know, I need to come off after X amount of weeks. It's yeah. just if you're monitoring your blood work, you know what's going on. Yeah. If something goes wrong, you may want to come off and reset that. If nothing's wrong, you, you don't need to come off. Okay. But there would be periods of time across the year where you taper down to reset. Okay. Certain and that'd be bring to bring you back into a physiological. It wouldn't be physiological. It wouldn't be. It'd still be super. Still using. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Of course. But you'd bring the amount you're you're taking down. Yeah. To essentially allow the body to put itself in a more um, optimal state of health because you're being less aggressive with drug use. The higher those those hormones go, the more adverse the the side effects yep. generally. Okay. Um, but tapering that can improve that. But essentially, you're still on. You're still on exogenous hormones, which means that the testes aren't going to be very happy with you, yeah. and the boys aren't going to work very well. Yeah. Um, okay. Regardless. And then it, our question off that: Will that always come back, or is there a chance it just might never come back? Depends how you approach PCT. Okay. So, so for it, for example, you've got someone who's been on for ten years. Are they less likely to come back on? Will, some will, will, some of that's genetics. Some genetics. Of that's what they've what they've most of that is how they've approach their drug use over that 10 year time frame okay and then the rest of that is how they've approached the pct process okay. but you'll hear of bodybuilders that have been on for decades and decades and have been extremely aggressive with drug use and they come off and the the axis is is restored pretty effectively yeah maybe after one or two bouts of um hcg and then some form of amplifications from clomid or novodex or whatever you want to use yeah within a PCT. If it's approached properly, it can be really successful. Yeah. If it's not approached properly, then you're going to spend a long period of time with that not functioning properly. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of scaremongering in, uh, in, in steroid use and it's a very demonized. I mean, I mentioned it to a few people. I'm a pretty open guy. I mentioned to a few people, you used to just see their faces turn and it's just the uneducated approach. And, and you can tell by the, uh, the information that you guys are getting today that the information is there and you can educate yourself before you get involved in this and I think it's so important to do so it's like, like I, I don't know where I said it I think I said it on Instagram the other day but it's only demonised by the people that are uninformed yeah if you know if you know what you're talking about or you know the sources of information that you should be listening to to educate yourself all of this stuff can be can be applied in a very quote unquote um not the, the wrong word is safe because it's never safe doing yeah, these things, but it, in a in a more optimal manner to preserve health. Yeah. Um, you know the whole notion of being it being frowned upon and and shunned in modern day society is just by people that have no clue what yeah. it actually is in the first place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then just one final question on the drugs. Uh, we kept here long enough. Um, what do you take and when, and and how do you know when to take it? What makes X person take this versus X person take that? Um, for example. I hear taking Winstraw on a prep is going to harden you up. You know, when do you make that decision to, to take that? Is it, I, get, I assume it's dependent on, on all the variables and everything like that, but what kind of decisions, and also your, your, uh, your drug lifetime, like what you've used and what you haven't, um, but what dictates what? For example, I saw um, TM Cycles, he's using uh, T-Ball, T-Ball I think he's using. I've never heard of it before in my life, like what, what makes him use that versus something else? If that's even a question that can be answered, I, ultimately all drugs within that toolbox are going to achieve a very similar 
physiological response in the body in terms of what it's doing. Some are going to aromatize more, some are going to aromatize less, some are going to hold more water, some are going to hold less water, some are going to be more, have a, have a higher um, propensity to be androgenic than, than others, um, which is why people refer to like the strength of a, of a drug for the purpose of, of gaining lean tissue or, or um, you know, uh, or, well, who anyone taking drugs will be looking to gain lean tissue. Um, some will be uh, anabolic, some will be metabolic. Um, ultimately, the timings of those drugs will essentially be dictated on the goal within that phase. And if somebody is using drugs within an off-season, they probably want a pretty big bang for their buck in regards to their ability to grow from that drug. But more so, then they're going to be less concerned about um, one's ability to keep water low uh, because they're not having to hold and peak a certain look um, which means that they may be utilizing drugs that will be having a higher capacity to aromatase um, and then they transition into prep and that will change because we need to get hard and dry and in condition on stage to, to bring a, a, a pretty complete look to stage so now compounds in general will switch to potentially shorter esters which are going to um, for the majority, your own size less and hold less water. Um, so th there, there are so many different forms um, and different esters of, of drugs available. But the when people say like, what's optimal for, for this? What's optimal for that? None of it is optimal for anything. It's just the yeah. timing of the type of compound you're using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and some are going to be less optimal in specific phases than others based on two factors, water and their ability to aromatize. Absolutely. Perfect. Um, if any of you guys want any more of this information, um, head over to Callum's Instagram page, head over to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, listen to um, Dean's Dean's podcast. Yeah, listen to, to Dr. Dean's podcast with the Muscle Mentors. It was it was quite a listen um, and debunked a lot of the stuff that, that I'd been reading and quite honestly stuff that I was believing. Um, so I think the, the key take-homes of today are get educated before you even think about this kind of stuff. Make sure you're maximizing everything optimally. Um, in terms of recovery, training, and nutrition, um, and reach out, reach out, get help. You know, people like Callum are here for a reason. Um, he's got a mission. We've all got a mission, and, and it's, to, it's to educate and, and to dominate. So, get in touch. Um, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Callum, for coming on, and uh, we'll speak to you guys soon. Peace. <laughs>